just by way of review, we're, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, and up to this point, you'll remember, the first chapter, rapid-paced, the gospel. Many, many effects, positive effects of the gospel, of calling people to repentance, calling his disciples, casting out demons. Many people are coming to hear the gospel. It's just a real vivid, technicolor display of the effect of the gospel, all of it in chapter 1. It's very rapid paced, immediately, immediately. The leprosy leaves him, and immediately he goes here and casts out the demon. The crowds are healed. Jesus is sort of on the move. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, uh, I think the title was The um, Trouble Begins. Okay, Chapter 2, you start seeing bubbling in the Pharisees. Well, they're thinking to themselves, like in chapter 2, verse 8 after he says uh, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and then he's going to heal the paralytic, and they says, chapter 2, verse 8, immediately that Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? So at first he can read their minds, and he knows that they're skeptical, these Pharisees. And as chapter 2 moves along, there's quite a few um, scenes here and after each one, the Pharisees will either say something or think something and start questioning Jesus more and more. And Jesus is eating with the tax collectors after he calls Matthew, and they're saying, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Then he moves into the, um, the teaching on the Sabbath. And this section today, we're going to look at Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, sort of rounds out this uh, teaching on the Sabbath. And it starts out when the Pharisees noted on the Sabbath that the apostles were walking through the fields, picking the grain, and eating them. And they said, oh, it's not lawful to farm on the Sabbath. Basically, it's what they're saying. Uh, and Jesus taught them, no, uh, they're hungry, and they're eating. And in the Old Testament, there was a scene where David was hungry, and he ate the showbread, and that was okay. Uh, there are times when your laws are irrelevant. And he'll sing, tell us today, uh, yes, a lot of your laws are irrelevant. And you have completely missed the boat on the purpose of the law and especially the purpose of the Sabbath. So what I'd like to do, let me read for us verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 27 through chapter 3, verse 6. And we'll round out this teaching on the Sabbath. So... Chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that he, they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save a life or to kill. But they kept silent. Of course, the Pharisees are who he's talking to. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Okay, this is the beginning of the book already. Death. This is where he goes. Already the Pharisees are conspiring to kill Jesus. 
This is a uh, foreshadowing of tough times to come for Jesus, right? This is a foreshadowing of the end. But early on, you can see that they're furious at what Jesus just did. And I've hoped to explain to you why they're so furious. Um, I think this text does it well, but let me, I want to explain some of the background and a little bit of review from last week about the Sabbath. So you remember, the Sabbath was instituted for rest. That was mainly why it was there. God said, on the Sabbath, you will rest. You'll do no work. Pretty much that was it. That was why he gave it to them. You will rest on the Sabbath. And it mirrored the, ten the uh, creation of the world, right? Jesus, or the Lord God worked for six days, rested on the seventh. And it was a blessing to the people to rest. That was pretty much it. But the Pharisees and the leaders over the years amplified that and started setting up all their multiple rules to add to the Sabbath so that in the end time of Jesus, the Sabbath was really a miserable day for them. I mean, they had all these rules they had to hold to. They couldn't walk a certain distance. They had to eat certain ways. They couldn't do this. They couldn't do that, etc. So it was the opposite of what the Lord had instituted it to be. And so you'll read through the Gospels it, that Jesus um, performs a lot of miracles on the Sabbath. It's obviously intentional. It is so obviously intentional that he is, he's sort of in their face performing these miracles on the Sabbath to prove a point, right? And I think of the verse we read last week, what he's doing is... Uh, Verse 21 of chapter 2, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, right? No one puts new wine into an old wineskin. I feel what he's doing, Jesus is the new wine, right? And he is destroying the old wineskin. He, he, is, he is showing them that your old system, especially what you Pharisees have established, it has got to go. It is null and void on the new teaching and the new wine. So, I want to read a few other sections in the Gospels about uh, what Jesus did on the Sabbath just to give us a sense of, to, to prove to you how, how Jesus is just intentionally uh, destroying their view of the Sabbath. Luke 13, verses 13 to 17. You don't have to, you can flip there if you want, but I'm going to read through these pretty quickly. Uh, he's going to heal a woman. It says, and he laid his hands on her and immediately... She was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things done by him. There's another example. Just clearly, you'll, even, you'll help your animal, right? You'll lead your animal away. And we'll read in a minute about another account in Matthew about helping a sheep that's sort of struggling. You'll, you'll help your animal, but you won't help a human. Created, you know, Abraham's descendant. Okay. Um, 
So he's proving to them, and he says it in the verse we read, the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath, saying, this is a blessing to you to obey the Sabbath. You weren't made to obey the Sabbath to sort of um, elevate the Sabbath. The Sabbath was elevated to help you. So, so they have it completely flipped around. Um, the Pharisees had this legal system, and the pinnacle of, of their identity, one of them was circumcision, as Shane talked about today, but the other uh, rule that they really kept strongly was this Sabbath issue. It was huge to them, and that's why Jesus is intentionally coming to destroy it. If you look at uh, verse 27, when Jesus says of chapter 2 of Mark, uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath. That is actually unique to Mark's gospel. This is the only place you see that, that verse. Mark's the one that points out Jesus is saying there. Making the point, it was made to promote man's welfare. It's a time of rest, time of refreshment. It's a gift. Time to elevate our minds above the day-to-day, -day, not work like normal. It's a blessing. And I keep emphasizing this because I think a lot of us me included, have been brought up somehow in the back of my mind thinking still somehow there's something in the Sabbath I should do. You know, I really have to be careful with the things I do on a Sunday. Should I really go, you know, enjoy it and ride my bike or go golfing? I don't know if I should do that because I... Anyway, so I think there's some baggage that we might carry even today about the Sabbath. And I think when Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, and we'll show you today in the text, it's done the Sabbath is no more. The restrictions in the Old Testament on the Sabbath are no more. I think I have winded myself to say that because I listened to a sermon by John MacArthur who taught on this. I listened to it last night on the way home from a party. And uh, I, you all should listen to it. It's really good. But I, I, it is safe to say that, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and he, through these examples in the Gospel, by doing these miracles on the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath, knowing that he was offending the uh, Pharisees' version of it and proving um, that it was a day of rest only, all these other things you've heaped on are not in the Bible, and they are no more. Okay? Uh, safe to say that. In Luke chapter 14, let me read you another verse. Excuse me, did I just read Luke chapter 13? Yes. Okay, Luke 13, they're indignant because he's healing on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. Okay, so here again you have, Jesus said, I'll do everything in the open. He said that before. I mean, his life is in the open, right? And we see it. He can't even, he can't get alone. He can't get in secret anywhere. He, everything he does is in the open. But still you get the idea that they're still like watching him, every little thing to criticize him, right? And that's what you see here too. They were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So he spoke to them and said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. He took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well, will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. And then he began to speak 
that parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the pieces of honor at the table. John chapter 5. In fact, you can flip there because we're going to jump through several verses in that chapter. It's really verses 2 through 18. I love this chapter. Um, anyway, uh, verse 2, there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, Bethesda having five porticos. And then there was this man, of course, we know, laying there, um, had been ill for 38 years. In verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he already had been a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? And the man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. In verse 10, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, after he's cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Okay, so this highlights, again, the pathology of their thinking, right? They see this guy, he'd been crippled for how many years? Years, 38 years. And he's healed. And they say, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath by carrying your pallet. See how self-righteous they were? Their their law and whatever they had come up with, their rules, which were not in the Old Testament, they had developed these over the years. They were so proud of that and self-righteous, they just could not see the whole reason the Sabbath was established was for rest. Don't work. It had nothing to do with healing people. nothing in there that you can't heal someone, you can't help someone. He even proves to them that they will help their own donkey who's stuck somewhere and their own sheep, they would do that, but it's not right for them to see a person who's crippled to be healed. It's more important for them to see, oh, you can't carry your pallet on this day. So this is why Jesus is confronting them so often because this is how sick they are. This is, this is how bad their system is, and this is the system that everyone was following. They were the leaders. They were the Pharisees. Most of the Jewish people would follow that, so he's intentionally coming to destroy it. Look down at verse 16 of that same chapter, and this is going to show, um, again, their anger toward Jesus. It says, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, in verse 16, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So he's healing people on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So not only does he you know, publicly humiliate them by healing people and showing that this is kindness and you don't understand it, but he also is, at least in John's account, telling them he's God, basically. God's my father. And this, of course, they can't tolerate either. So the question is, are we going to become more persecuted yeah. by? Well, well, just in general. I think the Bible is pretty clear that as time goes on, Christians will be more and more persecuted yeah. by the unbelievers, clearly. Yep. Um, 
So the Pharisees, I want to spend a minute just talking a little bit more about the Pharisees, and then we will get into our text today. You first see the Pharisees mentioned in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3, and they're called the brood of vipers by John the Baptist. And they come to be baptized, and he said, just read that because it's pretty poignant. John the Baptist even sees what they're up to. John is preaching repentance, verse 2 of chapter 3 of Matthew, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he quotes Isaiah the prophet, and it describes what John is like with camel's hair and leather belt around his waist. And then verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So this is the first we hear of the Pharisees in the New Testament. Gives us an idea of what they're like. Shane read this today. I'm going to read part of it. Matthew 23. Sorry to flip around so much, but these texts are really good at describing for us what Jesus is up against. And the parallel verse to this is in Luke 11, but we'll read Matthew 23, verse 23 through 39. And you know this chapter, that the Pharisees are being exposed by Jesus. And I'll just skip down to verse 23, but the whole chapter really says, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, blind, leading the blind, uh, blind guides, you fools, you blind men, etc. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provision of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's like what Shane was talking today. So they have the appearance, they have this veneer of following this law, but the real law written on their heart of being just and merciful and faithful and loving and kind, all those things they completely neglect. They see a guy healed from paralysis and they complain that he's carrying his pallet. So they're completely missing the law. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And he goes on and on. So this is what Jesus is up against when he's preaching throughout Galilee. These people who are hypocritical, conspiring early on to kill him. All right. Real quickly, and we'll get to the text. In John chapter 9, Shane even referenced this today. That's the chapter where the um, blind man is healed, and he's asked, was this man blind because of sin of him or his parents? Neither. He was healed to glorify God. I'll skip down to verse 27 of that chapter. He answered them. Uh, the, it's a great chapter. I love that chapter because they're asking the guy, well, who healed you? He's like, well, I don't know. And, uh, and he said, like, I'm surprised you don't know. I mean, you're supposed to be teachers of the law, and this man healed me, and no one's ever heard of anyone being healed, and you don't know who he is? You know, it's like, it's a great, wonderful, almost humorous chapter in that it, it, it really puts them in their place. It, it just hand ties them, and 
Uh, anyway, great. So, but in verse 27 of chapter 9, he answered them, I told you already and you do not listen. Why? why? Do you want to hear it again? So they ask him, who healed you? And he's like, I already told you. Uh, you do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And then it says they, they reviled him. So that they, they hate him. They reviled this man for exposing their weakness and their ignorance and their hypocrisy. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in your sins, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. So they want to silence him. What else can they do? They can't argue with him because there's nothing to argue. What he said is true. Okay, so we've set the stage. We know their position on the Sabbath completely distorted it. We know their, their heart of the Pharisee is a legalist, straining at gnats, hip, hypocrites. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1. I've just written up here for you the parallel sections. This, this story is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Um, so, verse 3, or verse 1, chapter 3. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Okay, so first thing, he entered again into a synagogue. Again, proving what I've said before. He, he is going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He knows he's going to heal somebody. He knows they're not going to like it. That's why he's going to do it. So MacArthur said Jesus is the aggressor here, and he is. And I love it. I mean, aren't you inspired by him? He, he is, Jesus is kind, and he's loving, and he's compassionate, and all that. And at the same time, when he needs to be strong against false teaching, he's the man about it. It's just inspiring for him to just courageously walk in there. He knows what he's up against. And he knows verse 6 is coming. They're going to conspire to kill him. But he just walks in because there's a new wine, right? He's got to destroy the old wineskin, and he's got to um, remove it. So he goes in the synagogue, which is a place where they're congregated. And Luke, it says, he went in there to teach. That was the reason he went there, is to teach. And then it says um, he's going to teach them in the synagogue. And there was a man there whose hand was withered. So this was seems a man who would frequently go to the synagogue. It's someone they would have all known, the guy with this withered hand. They knew it. Tradition says that this, it was, well, Luke says it was his right hand, and uh, there's a, some apocryphal writings and historical accounts of another man who was a mason who had a withered hand that Jesus healed. And so it seems likely that, you know, right-handed man can't work, basically. He's probably right-handed, couldn't work. And that would have been bad for him. Couldn't support himself or his family. And, uh, and they all knew him. Verse 2, they were watching him. Again, here you have them again. They're watching him. They're like, there's looming always, watching Jesus to, to see what he can do wrong, some jot or tittle that he's going to miss, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they Pharisees know why he's going there. <laughs> I mean, it's just an interesting scene. And this is the way Mark, you know, Mark is like the... Uh, newspaper account of a story. It's colorful, it's vivid, but just imagine, okay, he enters a synagogue, 
the Pharisees know he's going to heal the guy. The Pharisees see him look at this withered man. So they, everyone, the drama is sort of building. You know what's going to happen here. So they're looking at him and watching him, see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they're, they're loaded. They're, they're loaded to accuse him of violating the Sabbath. Um, it reveals their motivation, their bias. No matter what Jesus does, they are not going to believe it. I mean, obviously, he's performing all these miracles, casting out demons, and they're still sticking to their, to their, uh, their self-righteous view of life. And this is another lesson, sidebar, only God can change a heart, right? All the miracles in the world, if, if they have a hardened stone heart, they're not going to believe. So we need to recognize that and be grateful he changed our heart because without that, we would be like these people not believing. Luke says in this account that um, Jesus knew their thoughts. He says... Um, the scribes and Pharisees watched him. And then in Luke chapter 6, verse 8, it says, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man who had the withered hand. And then in Matthew, it says, The Pharisees asked him, Are you going to heal on the Sabbath? So all of this happened probably at the same time. Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man, uh, Stand up. Somewhere in there, the Pharisees must have asked him, Are you going to heal him? Are you going to heal him? So making the point, the gospel is not going to contradict itself. Probably all of them happened. It's just different versions of it are recorded here. Um, so, uh, verse 3. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Again, he's like doubling down to make a public display, right? So he's up there and he says, come forward. You know, like, stand up. I know what they're thinking. I know what they're waiting for. Let's do it. You know, that, that's, that's the image that I have here. He says to the man, get up and come forward. It's public display. So he's intentionally challenging their system. That's why he's there on the Sabbath. He could have said, come back Monday and I'll heal you. But he's doing it on the Sabbath. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill it? So, interesting question. Is it lawful? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill it? It's, it's, okay. They're handcuffed now, right? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? What can they say to that? How can they answer that question? They can't, really. Because, on the one hand, they would say, well, do good. Of course, to do good is lawful. Then Jesus can say, well, okay, then why can't I just heal this guy, right? So they can't answer that way. They can't say it's lawful to do bad on the Sabbath and to cause harm. And when you read in uh, Matthew's account right here, is where Jesus is where he interjects what else happened here. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 11, When they, after they, in that account, asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, what man of you, if he has one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. When he asked them that question about the sheep, the obvious answer is this is something they always did. They were always helping their animals, even on the Sabbath. 
So again, he, he's focusing the uh, contrast more and more and more. So I can't really answer that question. And he doesn't really ask a legal question. He's asking a moral question. This is, uh, I think, important to know. This, he said, is it lawful? But he's really not asking a law question. It's, it's an ethical, moral question. Do good or do bad, right? Reminding them of the intention of the Sabbath, right? It's not to obey a law. It's not there to just not do work because it's a law. It's there, the deeper meaning is, because it's gracious gift to you, for you to rest. This is uh, God's merciful, and he loves you, and he wants to give you rest on the Sabbath. So he sort of elevates it beyond the law and gets into the realm of a moral question. Okay. And then it says, but they kept silent because they can't say anything. It's like silence. Maybe like it is here. I don't know. But they're silent because they can't answer this question. There is no answer that, can, that will satisfy them. Okay, verse 5. Uh, after looking around at them with anger, and this is the only time in the Bible it says Jesus was angry. There were other descriptions of him being angry in the temple when he's clearing out the... Um, the, the uh, Money changers, thank you, yeah, he, he was angry, but this is the only place it says he was angry. And so, a couple points I want to make there. One is, of course, Jesus had human emotions. He grieved, he wept, he, um, he had compassion on people, he had joy, he uh, had pain, and he had anger. And I want to, and, and, but his anger is not like our anger, right? Our anger is mixed with often a self-righteous angle to it, right? Um, or in anger, when we lash out in anger at someone, we also usually want to do them harm. You know, we want to tell them what is their sin. We, we, we want to do them harm just because of our human fleshly anger toward them. Um, but Jesus' anger isn't like that. And I think the best way to describe it from the reading I did on what this word means, is it is a, um, a very intense disapproval. It's a very intense disapproval of what they are doing or what they're thinking. Strong impulse, like horror. It, it's just a very strong, uh, righteous anger uh, against these people. But So he looks around them with anger. And, and I want to read... This fellow here, Edmund Hebert, has a really neat couple sentences describing Jesus' anger compared to ours. I wish I could had a vocabulary like this. These guys write so well. Really, you know, some people, they just write so well, and it, it's just so descriptive. So let me just find it. It says, um, yeah, with anger, quote, the inner feeling accompanying the sweeping look. I didn't point that out to there, but... No, it says Jesus is looking out over them with anger. You, you can just sense there, there's this look in his face. Uh, here only is anger ascribed to Jesus. Um, it's not mentioned in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke. Okay, his, his holy indignation against evil was unalloyed by that feeling of malignity and vindictiveness which renders human anger almost always sinful. I'll read that again because it's so good. It says... His holy indignation against evil was unalloyed 
by that feeling of malignity and vindictiveness which renders human anger almost always sinful. Anger against sin is an essential part of a healthy moral nature. Jesus' reaction was perfectly consistent with his love and mercy. We'll see that here in a minute. So his anger is different than ours. Almost always our anger is, is marred with our sin and our vindictiveness and uh, desire to harm someone. Almost always we're angered when we are offended, which is different than Jesus, different than God. God is angry when he's offended. When, you offend, when someone offends God's rules or God's purposes, that's when anger might be righteous. But if you think about it, almost all the time our anger is when we're offended. Something doesn't go our way, and then we get angry. Road rage type stuff. I mean, that, that's usually what our anger is about. moment of anger towards then hating that brother or right. you know like what we do with the anger I think that's where it yep. also gets marred real quick yep. I mean, I, if our anger immediately led us to pray and to evangelize and to, to love that'd be awesome but I mean that would take a lot of practice and work that's right a lot of grace yeah. yep yeah I think there is righteous anger where we have an emotion and severe disapproval when God is offended <laughs> or false teaching but like you said, we ought to quickly turn it into mercy and relying on God to fix it, not us, through prayer. and right. So we ought to be careful of our own anger. So it's intense disapproval. Uh, God is angry you, a lot. You read about God's anger, especially in the Old Testament and the New Testament too. God can be angry, have a severe disapproval of of an action or thought. Yeah, okay. So, on the heels of that, um, what Brian just said, we had to quickly turn our anger into a desire to pray for that person. If you look at what happens here in verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, and then the next word, grieved. So, here you have, Jesus is angry, and grieved at the same time. Um, so think about that. That's again this paradox of judgment and then mercy, right? He's angry and he's grieved. It's like it's impossible to reconcile certain things in our minds, you know, his um, election, right? He chooses us, yet uses our faith, right? It's impossible for us to really ultimately figure out God's understanding of that and how he works that all out. But I think the same way, too, it's almost impossible for us as humans to reconcile his wrath, his anger against sin with his love and his mercy. So Jesus shows it here. He has anger and then instantly grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Great picture. And you just can't help but notice Jesus didn't do any work. He didn't even touch him. All he did was say, stretch out your hand. So I think, again, another example of Mark and the way he's just using the story and the details of it, 
if they had any kind of common sense, these Pharisees, right? If they really pause for a minute and just think straight, instead of just being so hyper and so um, self-righteous and blinded, really, in wrath, they would say, oh, yeah, his healing, it's not like he broke out his surgical tools and started digging away, right? He just said, stretch out your hand. No work at all was done. How could anyone with, with any sense of... Um, Fairness, think that that would be something that would be against a Sabbath rule. Can you think of any reason that's logical? There isn't one. There's no way. So I think, again, Mark intentionally points out this healing was one of the ones where Jesus just spoke, didn't even touch him. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. He didn't wait till Monday to do it. He didn't have to do any work. He just spoke. And, and he did this intentionally in their synagogue, on the Sabbath, with them all watching him to prove the point which this story proves to us. And so you can see their anger. In the very next verse, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And Luke, it says, they were filled with rage. They were filled with fury at this point. They were, just, they were blind mad dogs angry at what Jesus just, just did. Because what did he just do? He didn't just heal a man. He humiliated them. He proved that their Sabbath rules are, are just toast. They are ridiculously, and they're not to be obeyed. And he's intentionally disobeying them right in front of all those people. You can imagine, I mean, what would we do if we saw that happen here? The Pharisees didn't like it, but probably a lot of people in the room were like, whoa, wow, another healing, a miracle healing on the Sabbath just by speaking the word. So their world is, is being undermined, and that's what fills them with rage and fury because that's what they love is themselves and their rules. And like Shane talked about today, they lorded this over everybody. I'm the holy one. I'm the great one. Look at me. They're men pleasers, not God pleasers. Um, the Herodians, this is another interesting. Okay, so they begin conspiring with the Herodians. Do you guys know anything about Herodians? So the Herodian, like Herod, that's, that's where the name comes from, they, uh, they were enemies of the Pharisees. They didn't conspire together. Those people hated each other. The Pharisees came from, um, okay, yeah, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees were more interested in alliance with, like, the Rome, okay? They're, they're more, they weren't as... Um, uh, legalistic to keep the law like the Pharisees, right? They wanted more to side with the politicians. They, they were a little looser in their understanding of the law. The Pharisees were the law keepers. I mean, they jot and tittle, kept the law. That was their pride. That's what they kept, the Jewish law. They were Jews. They were the Jews of Jews, as we talked about. Um, the Herodians would more be more inclined to side with the Sadducees because the political connection. Herodian was a sect of Rome. It wasn't a Jewish sect. It was a political entity, followers of Herod and different Herods. So the fact that these two are conspiring together is really remarkable. The enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. That's what's going on here. The Herodians wouldn't like Jesus because of the crowds that are following him and it might undermine the political situation. And then the Pharisees didn't like him because of what he just did here. He's undermining the legal system of the Jews. So those two conspire together 
and the word here to destroy isn't very ambiguous. Uh, I don't know the exact Greek, but it, I know it means, you know, annihilate. They, they, they want to kill and destroy and get rid of Jesus. They don't want to just kind of shoot him off the side. They're, they're plotting here to kill him. And they're filled with rage. So I think that this, these six verses really uh, paint a great picture, don't they? Of, of Jesus' ministry and what he's up against with the Pharisees and their self-righteousness and their sin and their lust and their hatred and anger and everything. And Jesus is here to undermine that. And uh, so I, I want to finish just with a couple observations. Uh, one is um, the Pharisee of Pharisees was who? Paul. So you think of that. Okay, we painted the picture, these hypocrites, these whitewashed tombs, these evil, blind, vicious, nasty people. And the worst of them all was Paul. I don't know if he's here. He probably wasn't because he's mostly in Jerusalem, I guess. But the point being, uh, Paul was the worst of the worst. And what did Jesus do to him? Save him. Gave him a new heart. So let's read a couple other verses that uh, can just bring us home by way of application. So... Romans 8, you know, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law, the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what Jesus did to Paul. I want to read for you the verse of Jesus, what they were saying to him when he was on the cross. They said, the people stood by, this is Luke chapter 23, verse 35. The people stood by looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him saying he saved others, let him save himself. Sorry. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Right? Sorry. But... (laughs) This is, this is great, right? This is, this is the gospel. So these people hurling abuse at Christ, self-righteous, angry, vicious people. I just read a few verses, 35. The two verses before verse 35 of Luke 23 says what? They came, this is Luke 23, verse 33 and 34. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So, to bring it home for us, you build up this case for the Pharisees, right? And we see what vicious people they are. And he says, forgive them. He forgave Paul, and he forgives us. So, any comments on that? I think it's a, it's, it's a powerful... I read, as I was preparing for this, I'm thinking, those Pharisees, those Pharisees, man, they're vicious. Man, I hate them. They're just vicious, vicious. And then you think of these truths, and uh, it's wonderful, right? And so we would be like the Pharisees, hardened porcelain hearts. And Jesus grieved over us and saved us. So, great lesson, right? Not by me, from the Bible.
Any questions or thoughts about that? Yep. And the church, you know, we're the, we're the, we got it right, right? This is yes. the church. Everybody else is, yes. you know, I mean, that can be the, the mentality. And so, I, I mean, sorry, so you got me teared up. <laughs> but I try to encourage Carson, you know, those kids that are coming to you, that mm-hmm. are dressed right. Yes. That was me. Uh-huh. You know, when I look back at how Christ saved me. Yeah. So, we can't be so... You know, um, that we have it all right, and we've been sanctified all these years, and then when people are just, I mean, the Lord is bringing so many wonderful families, mm-hmm. and they're not going to have it all right. Right. You know, and we still don't have it all right. So, right. So I'm just, it just, I'm so grateful that you highlight those, that mm-hmm. you call them beautiful week, because it should be significant mm-hmm. in all of us, you know, to just yep. be merciful, reach out, give people a chance, don't give up on people. Mm-hmm. I think self-righteousness is such a common, well, for me it is there, and I think it's common to us. We, we can be so easily self-righteous. Um, let's not become like them, right, and, and understand where we came from and where we would be without him saying, forgive them, forgive them. We, we don't deserve it. Reminds me of Titus 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yep, excellent. Uh, Philippians 3, I thought of this. You know, when Paul just basically recounts his life, he says, uh, talking about, you know, he was true circumcision, verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, zeal, prosecuting the righteous, etc. And he says, um, verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. It puts those, I mean, reading Mark like we just read it and understanding what the Pharisees were like, that Paul was one of them. And he would have been sneering at the cross if he was there. I, I think he, I don't know if he was there or not. Probably, maybe. But the point being, he, he was one of them. And then he, he, God saved him. And so, wonderful truth. Anything else? All right, we're done. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day, all the mothers, and we'll see you guys next week.